Let me invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 24 as we continue to near the end now of the good news according to Luke. Luke 24 tonight verses 44 to 48. I'll actually read verse 49 this evening and we're going to pick up a portion of this next time. We're in a section where Jesus now post-resurrection appears to his disciples. Disciples who had denied him abandoned him, disbelieved in him, didn't trust what he said he would do, which was die and rise. And he appeared to them not to berate them, not to look them in the face one last time so he could shout at them as he turned his back, but rather to bless them. He came and the first words out of his mouth were peace to you. He came to give them the enjoyment of his blessings He also came to equip them to serve him, to be his witnesses. We're going to talk about his equipping of them in a moment. Last week we saw how he blessed them with the enjoyment of his benefits to these unfaithful disciples. His first words, I come in peace. I made peace for you with God by my blood, my peace I give to you. Peace, he said, to you. And likewise, he gave them joy. He brought them joy in his resurrection, in the confidence that he was really risen, that the tomb was empty. They, they grew to have great joy, not just in the reunion with him, but of course. But also that, that death doesn't win. The grave is not victorious and that his resurrection is the promise of their resurrection. So they had tremendous joy in him. Likewise, he brought them assurance of his love. I'm for you is what he was saying to them. I'm not against you. I'm loyal in my love to you. You who were disloyal in your love to me. And praise God, he is more faithful to us than we are to him. This was absolutely important, not only for the sake of their own souls and their own soul's enjoyment and delight of the good news of the gospel, which is a thing to be enjoyed. But it was also important for their future service and ministry to Jesus in this world. How could they confidently speak to others about the great, everlasting, loyal love of Jesus if they were uncertain about that themselves? You aren't in a place to help the chief of sinners if you don't know yourself that God forgives you through the blood of Christ. Or if you think that he's wishy-washy. In his love for you, how are you going to confidently tell somebody who's really struggling that God is not wishy-washy in his love for them? And so this was really important for them that they know peace and joy and love. Love, joy, peace, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But he wants to do more than that in their lives and in our lives. He wants to equip his disciples to serve him in ministry. In a moment, we're going to read that he calls them to be his witnesses. And so we want to think about uh, how does he equip us to be his witnesses? How does he equip us to serve him? And that's the question as we arrive at Luke chapter 24, beginning of verse 44. Let me invite you to give your attention to God's authoritative, inspired word. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, 
that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Father in heaven, bless us, we pray. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. Speak to our hearts. Be our teacher, our guide. Change us and bless us. And we ask that you would equip us, that we would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So tonight we see this incredibly remarkable thing, if you ponder it for a moment. That after three years of walking with Jesus during his earthly ministry pre-crucifixion, the disciples were not yet ready to serve him. They were insufficient for the work. They didn't yet understand what they needed to understand. They needed his continuing ministry in their lives. They needed him to equip them for service, and so do we. And you might uh, glance your eyes back at the passage for a moment. He does five or six things with them. We'll only ponder the first few this evening. But in verse 44, how does he equip them? Well, they needed him to instruct them in his word. And he does. And in verse 45, he opens their minds to understand the word. And in verse 46, he gives them the message, the heart of it, the principal thing. And in verse 47, he calls them, he commissions them to proclaim him to all nations. And at verse 49, he's going to empower them with his spirit. They're told to wait for that empowerment. We'll just consider a portion tonight, three things. Verse 44, how does Jesus equip his disciples to be useful in service to him? First, by instruction in the scriptures. Second, Verse 45, by the illumination of the mind, he opened their minds. And verse 46 in the third place, place, by directing them to the central importance of his death and resurrection. Uh, Let's look at those three things. The first at the greatest length. At verse 44, Jesus equips his disciples by instructing them in the scripture. He opens the word to them. Verse 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. He's reminding them of of a threefold division of the Old Testament, the law of Moses, prophets, and Psalms, with which many of them were very familiar. The law of Moses is Genesis to Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Old Testament. The Jews call it the Torah, sometimes called the Decalogue, um, not the Decalogue, the Pentateuch. Decalogue is the Ten Commandments, Deca meaning ten, Pentateuch is five, it's the first five books. Um, Then there are the prophets, 
And the prophets are in multiple categories. There's the former prophets and the latter prophets. The former prophets begin right after Deuteronomy with Joshua and run all the way up through those history books that take you to Esther right before Job. Um, And then uh, they include things like Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. And then uh, sometimes people think of them as history books, but they're really history with a purpose, with a point, with a punch. They're prophetic. They're theological. And then there are the latter prophets. After the book of Psalms and Proverbs, the wisdom literature, there's all those books like Isaiah to Malachi. Some of them are big and long, and they're the major prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Lamentations. And some of them are small. They're the little books, the 12 books, beginning with Hosea and ending with Malachi. That's your Old Testament. There was a common threefold. And Jesus is affirming that kind of threefold division of the Bible. He mentions here Psalms, but he really is using the categorical term for the wisdom lit that includes Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, and they would often take the, you know, the, the big one, and that would be the category term for all the rest. And so here you've got this threefold division of the Old Testament, and what Jesus is doing is he is saying, it's all about me. The Old Testament is about me. It's Christian scripture because it's about the Christ. And it's for you, he's saying to his disciples. <laughs> and it's for you, I'm saying to you. And as Dr. Bruce mentioned, if somebody tells you the Old Testament is not about Jesus, that person is disagreeing with Jesus. And sadly, it's very common in our day in different branches of the Christian church to to basically neglect the Old Testament or even write off the Old Testament or not consider it valuable or important or understand its place in the early church. There's a teaching going around that says that the early church didn't have or didn't depend upon the scriptures. It just had and depended on oral tradition. And here I quote a contemporary Eastern Orthodox theologian. The church does not rely on the Bible for its doctrine. We only rely, or we don't rely on the Bible because the church came first, this theologian says, for its beliefs within the, uh, the church does not need to find justification for its beliefs within the Bible. If you caught what that theologian was saying, it's this. When you embrace this idea that the church came first and the Bible came later, you begin to say that the church brought into being the Bible. And the church is really our authority for what we believe and not so much the Bible. You say things like, we get our doctrine from the church, not from the Bible. And so you invite people to put their trust in what leaders in the church have said, even godly leaders, instead of what the Bible has said. And you invite people to trust the preachers and the pastors and the councils of the church, which have erred at times, instead of God's written word. And that is always dangerous. People are fallible and the church is fallible. But notice that's the opposite of what Jesus is doing here. What is Jesus doing with his disciples on the evening of his resurrection? He's holding a Bible study with them from the Old Testament about how it's all about him. He's opening up God's book, walking them through the scriptures so that they would know what it said about the Messiah and they would realize, of course, this is about him. And so that they could therefore go out and do likewise with others. 
in ministry. They needed to be equipped. They needed to build their faith on him and through the scripture. He wants them to believe what they believe because it's taught in the scripture and then pass that on and show people it's in the Bible. These authoritative scriptures they could trust. Jesus himself believed them and he obeyed them and he fulfilled them because this is God's infallible word. And he's talking about here, Genesis to Malachi. God's people, dear Christian friends, have never been without God's word. It is his word that brings into being his people. Where his word goes and his spirit blesses, he forms a people. And that's why he's, he's equipping them with this word so that they can go out and proclaim him and God can build his church through this word. Now, can you imagine what it would have been like to have been there? It would have been incredible, I'm sure. I mean, it's just it's astounding to have Jesus walking you through the Bible and giving you a, a, a Bible lesson. What are the kinds of things Jesus might have pointed out in those Bible studies? I can only begin to suggest some of what he might have taught on this particular occasion from the law of Moses and the Psalms and the Proverbs and the, the, the prophets. I want to highlight some things I think he might have said, some things certainly that the Old Testament says here. And let me do so covering the breadth of the Old Testament with you. So if you'll just let your mind run through the Bible with me for a few moments. But before I do that and get into the particular details, certainly Jesus would have started perhaps, well, I shouldn't say I know what he started with. But certainly he would have said, now the God of the Old Testament, that's me. When you read of the God of the Old Testament, you're reading about me. He is all God. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. John chapter 1 verse 1. So perhaps when he turned to Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, he reminded of that. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. And you know what? I was right there and all things came into existence through me, perhaps Jesus said to them. And at Genesis 3 verse 15, after the rebellion, but before Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, God promised them that there was coming a seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. There was going to be a redeemer for them who would rescue them from the enemy of their souls. Perhaps at Genesis 12, he reminded them that the seed of Abraham is him in whom every nation is blessed, in him. Or in Genesis 49, that he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Or in Exodus, like Moses, he was rescued from infanticide. But whereas Moses was faithful as a servant in God's house... Jesus is faithful as a son over all God's house. Or in Leviticus, he pointed them perhaps to the high priest and his work. And he said to them, now I am the true high priest who enters heaven itself, bearing on my breast the names of my people. And I'm the final and the perfect sacrifice who makes atonement for your sins. And so I'm the new temple, perhaps he said. I'm where God and man meet, where heaven and earth meet. Numbers, perhaps he pointed them to the bronze serpent that was lifted up. And all who looked to it, all the rebellious 
who were being bitten by poisonous snakes and killed, all who were being cursed, could simply look to the bronze serpent and be rescued. And so he would say, as we, he did in the Gospels, and so the Son of Man must be lifted up that all who look to him may be saved. Well, that's the first five books, and that's just scratching the surface. Maybe he went to the wisdom literature in Job 19. He's the Redeemer whom Job knows shall stand one day upon the earth. Maybe Jesus said, where am I? I'm standing on the earth as Job looked forward to. In Psalm 2, he's the Lord's anointed to whom God gave the nations as his inheritance. Or maybe he turned to Psalm 23 and he said, I am the good shepherd. And I will walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death that you might fear no evil. For I am with you. Perhaps in the prophets, in the former prophets, maybe he turned to Joshua and he said, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Maybe in Samuel he reminded them that he is great King David's greater son. And a king after God's own heart, whose dynasty is everlasting, David's Lord, yet David's son. And in the latter prophets, in Isaiah, maybe in Isaiah 6, he said, Isaiah saw me in the temple, and the train of my robe filled the temple, and the angels gathered before me, and they covered their eyes, and they covered their feet, and they said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who is and who was and who is to come. The whole earth is full of his glory. And that was me. And maybe in chapter 7 he said, I am the son promised to the virgin. And maybe in chapter 9 he said, I am the son who was given, whose name is Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. Maybe in chapter 11 he said, I am the sprout of Jesse. I am the sapling coming out of the cut down people of God. And maybe chapter 42 he reminded them, I'm the servant of the Lord. I'm the servant who comes as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes of the blind. Or maybe at chapter 49, he said, I am the Holy One of Israel, deeply despised and abhorred by the nation. In fact, Isaiah 53, it's the will of the Lord to crush me. And that's what my cross was. And maybe at chapter 61, he said, I have come to preach. He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the the day of the favor of our God. And in Jeremiah chapter 23, maybe he showed them that he's the righteous branch of King David, whose name is the Lord, is our righteousness. And he is. Maybe he said, I am your righteousness. Maybe in Ezekiel 35, he showed them that the shepherd prince will feed God's sheep. That's what we're doing here right now. And in Daniel chapter 7, maybe he said, I am the son of man who was brought before the ancient of days in the vision of Daniel. And to me was given given a kingdom and a dominion 
that shall never be destroyed. And all peoples and languages and nations will serve me. Or maybe he turned to the minor prophets and to the book of Hosea. And he said, the faithful husband to his adulterous prostitute wife, that's me. I'm the one who calls not my people, you are my people. Or in Jonah, as we read, maybe he pointed to this as he did in his earthly ministry, that just as Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish, so he would be three days in the belly of the earth. And then like Jonah, rise. Or in Micah, that I come from Bethlehem and I come to give peace. Or maybe in Zephaniah, he showed them that God in our midst, that's me, I'm a mighty one who will save. I rejoice over you with gladness. I quiet you by my love. Or maybe he simply turned to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. And he showed them that he is the messenger of the covenant who suddenly comes to his people to sit as a refiner's fire to purify people for God. Now, we have barely touched just the most explicit and obvious Old Testament text about the Messiah and his work. And my point is, to back away from that, is to see that the church has never been without the written good news of the Messiah. There has never been a time when we have not had God's word about the Messiah by which we understand his ministry, by which the proclamation about Jesus being the Messiah might be evaluated. And in fact, this was the method of the New Testament apostles. You turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. It was Paul's method at verse 1 to go to places. So here he went to Thessalonica. And what did he do? He went to a synagogue of the Jews. And what did he do there? Well, as was his custom, verse 2. And on three days, he reasoned, three Sabbath days, three weeks in a row, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary that the Christ should suffer and rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Paul simply took the Old Testament to explain and give evidence for and proof that the Messiah had to suffer, had to die, had to rise from the dead. And then he said, and that was Jesus. (laughs) And what happened? Acts chapter 70 verse 4, some of them were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas as it did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. A lot of people love this message. They believed it. They heard it. They received it. But it also says that the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob and basically as you read the story they sought to persecute and destroy the church. And so what did Paul and Silas do? Well the church sent them away to a place called Berea. Away from Thessalonica to Berea. And Paul just redid what he did in Thessalonica. He went to the Bereans and he went to their synagogues and he taught them the Old Testament. And that it was about Jesus And it says at verse 11, these Jews were more noble than those of Thessalonica. They received the word with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily 
to see if these things were so. In other words, the Bereans were commended not for simply taking Paul at his word. And Paul was commissioned by the risen Jesus himself to go preach the gospel. And he doesn't just come out and say, now look, you have to listen to me. But they are commended for listening to Paul and examining by the scriptures they have. Is what he is saying true? May we all and always go and do likewise. Don't put your trust and your faith in what I'm telling you is what I'm telling you. Who doesn't, when they tell you something, believe wholeheartedly what they're telling you is true? Of course I do. But I want you to believe it, not just because I believe it. And young people, we want you to believe this, not just because your parents believe it. We want you to believe it because you have read the word, you've heard the word, you've seen the truth of the word, and you've begun to believe by the Spirit of God the word. Because then your faith rests in God himself speaking to you through his word. And so may we, dear Redeemer people, make it, I don't know, our five-year or our ten-year or our lifetime ambition to become thoroughly acquainted with all the books of the Bible, all 39 Old Testament books, and how They speak to us of our Savior and Messiah, Jesus. And may we build our faith on Jesus through God's trustworthy and authoritative word. Now that's the first point, it was long. The second thing Jesus does to equip them, the first is he opens the word. The second is he opens their minds. Notice verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Jesus here equips them by the illumination of the mind. People, in other words, need light. And God's word is a light to our path. We cast the light of his word before people upon their darkened understanding, but more is needed than that. If I see a blind man walking downtown at the end of the day and it's getting dark and he's being led by his dog, do I think to myself, it will be better for him tomorrow when the sun rises. Well, no. Because a man doesn't just need light, he needs sight. And so it is with these disciples. They had the light of the scriptures and the light of Jesus explaining the scriptures. And on multiple occasions, he told them that the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and suffer and be crucified and rise but from their whole unbelieving response. Look at Luke 9, look at Luke 18. When he told them these things, it says, but they didn't understand. They were darkened in their understanding. Here, he tells them again, and they get it. Why? Why? Because their mind was opened to the scriptures. Why is it this way? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the apostle Paul says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. In other words, there is a weakness and an incapacity 
in people that needs to be overcome. A natural man is an ordinary human being, fallen and without the Spirit of God. A person who, who without the Spirit, does not accept the message of the gospel and who thinks it's just foolishness, who thinks it's folly, who thinks it's ridiculous and crazy talk. That's the natural person. And it says more than that, he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. In other words, it's not simply that he doesn't understand them or that he will not choose to understand them, but that he cannot understand them. And the reason he cannot understand them is that he does not have the Holy Spirit. These things are spiritually discerned or they are discerned by means of the Holy Spirit. By the spirit of Christ in us. By Christ opening our mind through his work in our minds. And so left to ourselves, we are all blind and deaf and disinterested. But the spiritual person has come to understand because the spirit of Christ has opened their mind. And given them eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe, minds to embrace. He doesn't change the Bible, but he changes us. The Spirit of God working in and through the Word does this work. And that's what he did now for the disciples at this instance. There is no way that this preacher can give you sight. There is no way that I can open your mind and make you believe. I'm utterly helpless to do that. But God can do that. And God does that. And for many of you, God has done that. This is the story of Lydia. In Philippians chapter 16, Paul went to preach to a group of religious women. And he was explaining them to the, the gospel and their hearts and minds weren't yet opened. And then it says the Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond to the Lord's message. And respond she did. Because he's gracious and he does this work. And we're absolutely in need of it. Now all of this raises an interesting question if you're tracking what I'm saying. It raises an interesting question. Why did Christ spend three years or so teaching his disciples when they had closed minds and they didn't get what he was saying to them? When from the beginning... He could have opened their minds so that they understood from the outset. Why wait to open their minds until after the resurrection? I have three responses to that. First, it wasn't useless. Because once new light was shed, the things they learned but couldn't figure out before came nicely into place. This is how parents should disciple their kids This is how Christian teachers should disciple their students. This is how friends should disciple one another. It is not a waste of time to teach people the truth, though they say, I don't get it. Now look, don't bruise the fruit. If they don't want to hear it, that's another story. I mean, don't punch them in the face with it again and again and again. We want softened hearts, not hardened hearts. But we talk to people who don't get it because what we are doing, as one person put it, is it's like we're stacking dry wood in a fireplace. And when the match is lit, then there's 
stuff ready to burn brightly. And when the Spirit comes, then they grow and mature. So it wasn't useless for Jesus to have told them ahead of time what he was going to do. But secondly, their prior ignorance, though they had been instructed, was going to serve to inform them that it is by the work of Christ in them through his spirit that anyone truly comes to understand and believe. So therefore they were taught not to trust themselves. So therefore they were humbled. So therefore they were made to know that they were dependent and everybody else is dependent upon the work and activity of the spirit of God, of Christ at work in. And therefore we boast not in man, but we boast in the Lord. And thirdly, my third response is this. It was one more proof to them that Jesus was divine. He isn't just a great prophet, but he is the true God who has power over the mind. And so the Apostle Paul will say about his ministry, his own ministry of preaching the word, that he was just like a farmer scattering seed. And he planted an Apollos water, but God gave the growth. And therefore God gets all the glory. And so a few points of application on this point. It's the Lord who opens our minds to understand in the first place. If you're wrestling with the Bible and what the church teaches and you just, you're puzzling and you're trying to figure it out and you don't know, then just call out to the Lord. Lord, help me. He delights to answer that kind of prayer. The Apostle Paul prayed that prayer for his beloved. In Ephesians 1, 17, 18, he said, he prayed that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, I pray he would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. He prayed for this for people. And so one pastor put it this way, a humble and prayerful spirit will find a thousand things in the Bible which the proud and self-conceited student will utterly fail to discern. So let us be humble and prayerful and ask for it. But secondly, let's praise. Not just prayer, let's praise. Praise. Remember, we didn't get this gospel from the finest preacher we ever heard or the most loving parent we ever heard or the purest church we ever heard. You ultimately got the gospel because God spoke to you through his word and by his spirit he brought it home to your heart. And so we glory in the Lord and not in man. And so we praise. And then thirdly, apply it, we pray. We pray again. If you have dear loved ones, you long for them to know the goodness of the gospel, then let me suggest, number one, you love them. And love them sincerely. Sincerely and genuinely love them. And number two, talk to them about the scripture. Talk to them about the Messiah. And number three, ask the Lord to open. Why? the mind, and understanding. Now that's the second thing Jesus does to equip them. Not only he opens the word, but he opens the mind. And in the third place, he focuses their attention on the importance, the central importance of the death and resurrection of the Messiah for our salvation. And we'll have more to say about this next time, but at verse 46, he says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all nations beginning from Jerusalem, your witnesses of these things. He's focusing them on the cross, 
He wants them to glory in the cross of the Lord Jesus. And this is what we are to do. And this is what Christians say. That on that cross, the Lord of glory was treated like a criminal. The God of power was pinned. The God of holiness was treated like a sinner. The God of justice was handled unjustly. The God of goodness was treated wickedly. The God of truth was misunderstood and it was all in my place and on my behalf. And in his death, I have life. In his being cursed, I am freed from the curse. In his condemnation is my acquittal. In his sufferings, they make my sufferings but light and momentary and temporary. And his sorrows purchase my eternal happiness and his resurrection gives me hope. And so we delight to say, upon a life I have not lived and upon a death I have not died, but another's life and another's death, I stake my whole eternity. Let's pray. Jesus, we bless you. You are great and awesome, kind and tender. You are open-handed and generous. We thank you for this book. We thank you for Christ in us, the hope of glory, and the work of your spirit to help us to understand. We ask all the more for that work. And bless us and our souls to rest on your accomplishment on our behalf. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's stand together and sing.